Well, we do rejoice to be together today. I'm so thankful for our church body. A couple of weeks ago, Gallup Poll, I read an article, Gallup Poll released their annual report. It's a study they release every year calculating the mental health of Americans. And of course, this year is notorious because of the pandemic and the data, what they found was, pun intended, quite depressing. Every slice of the population, whether broken down into gender or socioeconomic class or education or ethnicity, every slice, no matter how they sliced the population, they found there was a decline in mental health with one singular exception. There's one single group of people whose mental health this year in 2020 got better. You know who that is? People who go to church every single week. Isn't that amazing? Not members of churches, mere members, not people who attend a, a couple of times a month, or, or even people, they even had a category of people who say, well, I attend nearly every week. No, it was people who marked, I attend church every single week. Research shows that everybody else, even people who come to church quite often, may even be among the people who are most depressed. Only those committed to weekly corporate worship are actually doing better. Now, we, we knew this already. We know this from Scripture. We know this from the truth of the Bible. But I always take a little bit of joy, a little bit of joy when we find science and data confirm to the world what God has been saying all along. In fact, I read this article, even, even if the, the, the world ignores it, I read this article not once in the article did they mention this one exception. They didn't even talk about it, that there is one exception. Numbers can't deny it. Well, we see this from a biblical standpoint. God's command, weekly worship, and all of God's command are given for our joy. Our greatest joy is found in doing what He says and worshiping and honoring Him with everything we do. But then here we have even secular statistics that point to the same fact. If people are committed to worship and fellowship every single week, they do better mentally than everyone else even in spite of a pandemic. Now, I don't say that to guilt. I know that we have a number of you maybe watching online at this very moment. I'm not saying it to guilt you. In fact, I would caution a number of folks, especially folks who are more in jeopardy uh, of this pandemic. I would caution you about gathering even on a Sunday morning. But in our minds, we ought to have this idea how essential weekly worship actually is. I mean, this is proven, this fact, how essential coming and being a part of a church body and ingesting the Word of God and, and fellowshipping even through masks how important this really is. And I think many of you can say that. You've been walking with Christ through this pandemic. You've been coming to church. You've been diligent to follow Him, to be a part here. And, and you might even look back on this strange year that we've had, and you would say, you know, I'm actually even better than I was this time last year. God has grown me. God has infused me with joy, and it's the joy of Jesus Christ. Well, it's with that joy in our hearts that we come again to Peter's great confession and how appropriate this confession is to study on the Sunday before Christmas. We're getting right at the heart of the nature and identity of Jesus that Peter confesses, confesses, and this really tells us a lot about Christmas, doesn't it? We have been studying six truths of a true confession. We've seen the first two. We're looking at the second two now. We started looking at that section last week. We're continuing this week. In fact, this week we're just focusing in on one verse that verse where he actually says those words, but the whole section is really our focus in this Christmas season and in our study of Matthew 16. So 
Now, let me read to you the entire section, verse 13 down to verse 20, and we're going to focus on verse 16. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the Word of God. Anyone ever heard of a mezuzah? Maybe you've toured Israel. You might even have a mezuzah. I've mentioned this before from this pulpit, but it's been quite some time. In the word, in Hebrew, the word mezuzah simply means doorpost, but that word has come to mean uh, a little uh, ornate uh, container. Looks like a little pen container, a little scroll container that people put, mainly Jews, put on their doorposts. And in that container is a little rolled up scroll, and upon that little scroll is written a passage of Scripture that the Jews know as the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. The passage is called the Shema because the passage begins in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, or in English, Hear, O Israel. Well, I had one of those many years ago on our doorpost, and I gotten one from Israel. My wife and I had, had been to Israel, and we, we picked one up and put it on our doorpost there. And after we moved out of that house, sold the house, moved it, I actually sold the house to another minister, a pastor, another Baptist pastor. And uh, we were moving out of that house, and and after we moved out, it dawned on me I had forgotten our mezuzah. And so after we'd closed on the house and everything, I drove back over to the house and and uh, just going to see if I could pick up that mezuzah. And before I could say anything, the pastor had opened the door and said, hey, I just want to thank you for leaving this mezuzah here. It was so nice of you. So I had to quickly come up with a different reason why I'd shown up that afternoon. I told this story to you some years ago and a family in our church, the Rojas, actually uh, picked one up in Israel and gave us a, a new one. Anyway, you know what that passage says. I've mentioned it. It's probably very uh, implanted on your mind, even as a Christian. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You can see where they get this idea. They could have taken something that I think God meant uh, figuratively or, 
or uh, in terms of just uh, putting it in their minds, in the forefront of their minds, he wasn't meaning it literally, but the people took this literally and they created phylacteries where they would put this, this scripture and they created mezuzahs where they actually put that scripture on their doorposts. As time went on, Jews would interpret that passage a little more literally, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In fact, this is what Jesus identified in Mark chapter 12 as the greatest of all commandments. Jesus repeats it, but with a little more clear interpretation of the original. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. I think there's one part of that command that we often forget. In fact, I think it's probably the part of that command that American Christianity has systematically forgotten. What is that part of the command? Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Soul, emotions, love Him, of course. Body, strength, actions, love Him there too. Heart, the deepest eternal part of you, of course, love Him with all your heart. But also, as a result of loving Him with your heart, love God, worship God with your mind. Why? Because the gospel is not just a vibe. It's not just some assumptions or presuppositions or some guesses. It is truth. It is doctrine. It is data. It is, in fact, history. And to love the Lord your God with all your body, mind, soul, and strength is, yes, there's emotions, there's heart, there's your body, there's physical actions, but there's also a call to worship God with your mind, to understand truth, to dig in, to understand data, to affirm Him, to confess Christ theologically with truth and with reality and with history. Well, what we're going to find true about Peter's confession today is that when Peter speaks up, his words are filled with doctrinal truth. He affirms divine doctrine. He affirms historical reality that Jesus is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. He's come to a place not, not merely in his emotions or deep down in his, in his soul or his heart. He's, he's come to this also in his mind. He's, he's made the logical and theological conclusion. Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In fact, you can think of this passage, you can sort of break it down in three sections. I'm breaking it down into three sermons, but you can think of it this way. The first two truths of these six truths, the first two truths of Peter's confession we looked at last week is what you might call internal truths. That's true about the heart of every believer, beginning with Peter, in contrast to the world's opinion. What is true internally about Peter and all other disciples' hearts, contrast to common opinion, they confesses his internal truth. Here today, as we inspect Peter's Word, what we're looking at is external truth or historical or theological truth. What does he say externally? What does he actually confess with his lips? And then next time, we'll see the eternal truths of the confession, these things that are coexistent with God's sovereign plan and God's will. First, the internal truth, then the external truth, 
And the next time, the eternal truth of the confession. So today is the external. Just a reminder of, of the internal, what we studied last time. First, a true confession, number one, stands against common opinion. I think this is a very helpful point. We talked about this last time. Don't assume that everyone who has sort of a positive idea of Jesus or God or Christmas, uh, that they're in. Uh, all the people, that all the crowds, they profess Christ in some way. They confess Christ in, in some way, and they were very positive about Jesus, but they're false believers. They were not true because they did not fully confess Christ. Someone may think they're paying Jesus a big compliment by calling him a great teacher, a, a great moralist, or someone who died for a really good reason and provided an example or whatever. That's insufficient. That's an insufficient profession. It's a false profession, a false confession, and it's not what Jesus wants. What Jesus wants is the disciples to see there's a the contrast between a true confession and the false confession, the common opinion of the people. And this brings us to a second truth regarding a true confession. Again, part of the internal confession. Number two, a true confession comes from the heart. This is something that came from Peter's heart. And what we learned looking at Jesus' language here, as well as what he says later in verse 17, that the truth of Christ was not just some guessing. It wasn't just some positive vibe or some sort of guess on his part, an educated guess. God had actually regenerated Peter's heart. It came from the core of his being. Who is Jesus? And it really was, who am I to you, Peter? And Peter responds from the heart, unlike the common understanding in contrast to that, God had changed his heart, had opened his eyes, the truth had come to him, and he confessed Christ. So those are the internal truths of a true confession. That's the internal confession. But what did Peter actually say out loud? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is truth here. There is real doctrine here. It's tied to and consistent with history. It's consistent with biblical theology. It's consistent with the ancient promises and the future promises. Now, what is it? What else is true about a true confession? What are the external things about a true confession? Number three, a true confession believes Jesus is the Messiah. A true confession believes Jesus is the Messiah. That's the first place Peter goes. That's the first thing he professes openly. You are the Christ. The word Christ there, Christos, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah is anointed one. And from the very beginning, there were promises about an anointed one. You had, you had many people that were anointed throughout the history of Israel, primarily prophets, priests, and kings, but there was one to whom all these people pointed. And it was the one true anointed one. It was the ultimate anointed one. It was the Messiah. It was the Messiah that was spoken, up all the way, spoken of all the way back in the book of Genesis, right? At the very beginning, the one promised. The one who would be anointed, not just for a purpose, for a short amount of time, or, or infused with God's Spirit for a short amount of time, for a short purpose. No, but someone who would have the Spirit eternally. The one who would be the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah. Now, to confess Jesus as the Messiah, what... What do we think is going on in Peter's mind? I wrote down several things. First of all, we, we can agree that Peter 
believe that this world needs a Messiah. He wouldn't talk of a Messiah. He wouldn't believe in a Messiah. He wouldn't, certainly wouldn't believe Jesus is a Messiah if he didn't think that the world actually needed a Messiah. So Peter has, has an anthropology, a belief about man. And that belief about man is that man needs the Messiah. We need a Savior. We need a Christ. You can say Peter believed in the fall of man. He believed in the total depravity of man, that is, man's utter inability to save himself. And so, believing in these things, he believed the the need of man for a Savior, for a Redeemer, for a Messiah. He believed this about man. He believed in, in, with that belief about man, he believed in all the, the covenant promises about the coming Messiah. Starting with God's covenant promise to Adam, as I mentioned, a repeated covenant, Adamic covenant that God repeated to Noah, then Abraham, then Moses, then David. The promises about the Messiah being reiterated, those covenants being spoken of again and again, and this idea of the coming Messiah over and over, not just spoken of, but pictured in all the prophets and the priests and the kings. All these truths that one day God would send His Savior, His Messiah, to redeem humanity. And here we are again in the Christmas season, and we sing all these songs, wonderful songs about the Savior, the Messiah, glory to God. But don't forget the reason is so wonderful, so glorious, so magnificent, because we need a Messiah. Why is Christmas great for us? It's great because the announcement of Christmas season is the Messiah has come, and we needed a Messiah. That's what Peter's saying. Years ago, I preached four sermons. Some of you may remember them, four sermons at Christmas time, and it was over the four songs. There are four songs in the book of Luke. There are four songs surrounding the birth of, uh, of Christ. In fact, you could call them the first Christmas carols. I preached those four sermons in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And in each one of these songs, if you look at them, you can see this acknowledgement of human need of a Messiah and a praise of God that the Messiah, the Savior, has come in the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, you have Mary's song, the Magnificat. She says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He's looked upon my humble condition. Obviously, she's praising God because the Savior has come. Zachariah's song called the Benedictus was uh, sung by uh, Zachariah after John the Baptist, his son, was born, who he knew was the precursor to the Messiah. What's he seeing? God has visited His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. The Savior has come, in other words. The next song is the song that you're probably most familiar with, the song Gloria, sung by the angels. Best translated, glory to God in the highest, peace among those whom He is pleased. God is saving. God is providing salvation and grace and peace among men. He is giving man the Messiah. He's giving man His Christ who would save them. And finally, the fourth song, what is called the Nunc Dimittis, sung by Simeon in the temple. He sees the baby and he cries out to God, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. He recognized the need of a Messiah. He praises God for the provision of the Messiah. So when Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, he agreed with all these saints, he agreed with all the Old Testament 
at that point and even before then and after then that this world needs a Messiah, and that Messiah has come, and it is Jesus Christ. The second thing he is saying by calling Jesus the Christ, you are the Christ, I believe Peter is saying that Jesus is the only Messiah, not just that the world needs a Messiah, but Jesus is the only Messiah. Now, this is evident in the language here because Peter actually uses the article, the Christ, not the indefinite article, a Christ, or one of many Messiah is, no, you are, definite article, the Christ. There is no other Messiah. There is no other Savior. There is no other Christ. There is no other name given among men whereby we can be saved. There is only one Christ, only one Savior, and it is Jesus of Nazareth. I've mentioned this before. This doctrine is called the doctrine of exclusivity. It doesn't mean exclusive in terms of Uh, who can come and who can't come, all who come to Christ will be saved, all who turn to Jesus will be saved. But it talks about the exclusivity of the path to God. There is one way, and it's through Christ, and that one way is exclusive. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The Bible teaches the exclusivity of the path to God, and it is always through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Acts 10.43, to Him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. The opposite would also be true. Everyone who does not believe Him does not receive forgiveness, and they are damned forever. 2 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and the man, and it is the man, Jesus Christ. Christ. So, Peter believed this. He believed that we as humans, we need a Messiah, and he believed that Jesus is the only Messiah, and this would lead him to this ultimate confession of Christ here. One more thing I would say about the Messiah that he believed is just present in his confession here. Third, Peter declared that Jesus was his Messiah. I don't think Peter was just saying this as a doctrinal fact, though it was a doctrinal fact, though these things were true of Jesus. I think Peter, again, getting back to what we saw last time, this was a deep internal truth from him, and he was declaring a fact now externally that Jesus was his Messiah. There must be some of you here, maybe you're watching on YouTube, maybe you've recognized him as the Messiah, maybe you've confessed Him in your mind. Maybe you've even thought of Him sort of in an emotional way. You think of Jesus, you think of church, you think of Christmas, and and these things stir things emotionally, but you've never truly come to the point in your life where you say to God, Jesus is my Messiah. He's my Savior. He's my Redeemer. What that means is you believe that He loves you, He paid for your sin, you trust that He will give you the righteousness you need to get to heaven, it's not your righteousness, but His. It's, it's also a belief that He has paid for your sin, and it's also a belief that He conquered sin and death in His resurrection. And you have committed your life to Him. You want to be His disciple. It's like Peter. He is your Messiah. Simon Peter, having been touched by the Spirit, having been given this spiritual knowledge in his heart, declared, you are the Christ. We need a Messiah. You're the only Messiah and you're my Messiah. 
Well, what's the second phrase of this confession say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Fourth truth of a true confession. It affirms Jesus' deity. Some years ago, when we were going through Philippians, we arrived at those verses that Pastor Steve mentioned or read to us at the beginning, chapter five, verses, uh, chapter two, verses five to eleven. And when we got to that section, I preached several sermons. Two of them, if you can remember that far back, I took the title from a couple lines in my favorite Christmas hymn, "Hark the Herald Angels Sing." This song, if you just ponder the lyrics, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful songs. The only thing I don't like about that song is that we can't sing it all throughout the year because it's just such a great song. It gives us so much truth. But I titled two of my sermons from two of the lines there, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See, Hail, the Incarnate Deity. What a beautiful poetic way to talk about the deity of Christ. Yeah, really, that's what all songs are supposed to do, supposed to give us biblical truth. There's that command right there at the first, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. In other words, see Him, look upon Him, consider Him, esteem Him as God. Esteem Him as true deity, though veiled in flesh. Esteem Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as true deity. Value Him. Worship Him. As one with the Godhead, come here in the flesh. And then you praise. That's the second sermon I preached there. You worship, worship Him. You hail Him as this incarnate. Incarnate just means in the flesh. You hail Him as the incarnate deity. And I think those two phrases, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, then hail the incarnate deity, are a great way to think of the second part of Peter's confession. Esteem Christ, see Him, value Him, consider Him as God veiled in flesh, and then worship Him as such. What a magnificent thought. What a life-changing reality. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper into the doctrine of Christ's deity. I would imagine that most of you uh, here or watching are convinced of the deity of Christ, but maybe, maybe you need a little help, maybe you need a few verses or a few thoughts to, to, uh, to think about as you consider the, the deity of Christ. The biblical teaching of Christ is that though Jesus is a different person, He is still God, He has the same nature of God, He has the same essence of God. When Peter says, you are the Son of the living God, and we've learned this already in our study of Matthew, in the Jewish mind, it means that as the Son, you have all the power, you have all the authority, you have all the position, you have all the rights as your Father. To say that someone is the Son of someone, you are asserting that He has, is the same in terms of power, in terms of position, in terms of authority, in terms of right. That's why, and I mention this all the time, but that's why the Pharisees say in John chapter 10, 33, that He makes Himself to be God. How does He do that? By calling Himself the Son of God. In fact, that was, the, that was the accusation that put Jesus on the cross, that He makes Himself to be God. By calling Himself the Son of Man, the Son of God, He makes Himself to be God. 
Oh, he's a different person of the Trinity. He is still divine. He is still God. You are the Son of the living God, Peter says. Now, we can come to the doctrine of Jesus' deity rationally, and I'm going to give you some more verses here in a moment. There is a point, we all have to admit, there is a point where our minds fail. Our minds are not infinite. Our minds are weak. Our minds are feeble. So if you're trying to solve the mystery of the Trinity in your mind, you will fail. You'll end up underneath your bed saying the Latin alphabet backwards. There's this place that your mind can't go. It's not big enough to comprehend how this works. Three persons, one God. It's just... It doesn't make sense. It's logically true. It makes sense. It makes sense of all the scriptures that we see. It makes sense of everything, but there's a place that our minds just simply can't go. Sometimes people hold a ridiculous idea that for something to be true, we must be able to understand it. I think a lot of people think this about the ideas of God's sovereignty, God's election, God's predestination, and man's responsibility to choose God. And they think that they've got to work it all out in their minds. And they end up believing some very bizarre things that are unbiblical. And really, the starting point is just to say, you know what? I just profess what the Bible says. These are both true, even though I cannot understand these in my mind. There's a place that our mind can't go. I was reading an article, as probably with some of you nerds, the Scientific American had an article, uh, I think it was about a year ago. And it was about this fact. I didn't know this until I read this article, that phys- uh, uh, physicists are not yet settled on what actually makes airplanes fly. Did you know this? They, did not act, they do not actually, they're not settled on this. There's disagreement. There's uh, a, a little bit of a debate among these scientists about actually what makes planes fly and keeps them up in the air. First, first of all, there's what they call uh, Bernoulli's theorem. And this basically says, you know, there's, there's a vacuum that's created on top of the wing and there's a high pressure below the wing, and it lifts the wings. Maybe that's something some of you have heard about how airplanes fly. That doesn't explain, by the way, because the, air, the wing is curved, that doesn't explain, by the way, how airplanes can fly upside down. And so there's another theorem, and it's based on Newton's third law of thermodynamics, that for every action there's an equal, equal and opposite reaction, right? So the wings and the, the body of the plane pressing against the air, and there's this reaction, and it's just enough to, to put it up in the air. These Theorems work completely independent of, they don't account for one another. And so you have a group of scientists that say, well, this is what it is. And you have a group of scientists that say, this is what it is. And you have others that try to make sense of both of them. Their minds cannot understand it, even though they can logically come to both of these things. Well, this is what's true of the Trinity. We can logically and theologically and biblically look at the data, look at the information, come to this idea, Jesus is, in fact, God. But our minds fail, don't they? We cannot fully understand. We cannot fully comprehend. And this is a truth that Jesus is, that P- Peter is actually saying here. Peter is saying, you are the son of the living God. And I don't think Peter was saying, I know everything about this, but as I look at the evidence, as I look at the truth, as I look at the scripture, I have come to the conclusion that you are indeed deity, God in the flesh. You're Emmanuel. You're God with us. You are the son of God. The early church, they struggled with this, mainly because you had people who rejected this thought, and they would be condemned as heretics, but the early church nailed this down pretty early on. They began to speak in their Apostles' Creed and later in the Nicene Creed, and they would say, Jesus is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. 
This is truly God. Let me give you a few cross-references. Maybe you want to write these down for future reference on your study of the deity of Christ. John 1, verses 1 to 14. Just read the entire section. It's very obvious that John uses the nomenclature or the word word to talk of Jesus. And he essentially says, the word was God. The word created with God the world, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Later on in John, John 8, 58, the Jewish leaders, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, Jewish leaders were angry with Jesus. They say, how can you know, how can you say that you know Abraham? And Jesus said to them, you remember, before Abraham was, I am, taking on that very title of God. And he's not saying, I can do time travel, I'm not some ghost, I'm not some apparition, I'm not some sort of in-between figure between God and... No, he took on the title of God, I am. And his enemies, Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees and scribes, the people who put him on the cross, those, those people knew what the Jehovah's Witness hadn't figured out yet, that Jesus clearly claimed to be God. Put him on the cross for it. John 10, 33, I mentioned earlier, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, this is Jesus' enemies speaking of him, you being a man, make yourself to be God. Colossians 1, 15, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image, the exact representation of the invisible God. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. This is speaking of Jesus. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 10.38, he says, look at my works. They're going to tell you about my nature, that you may know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. John 20.28, the disciples are finally getting it, finally understanding it all. Doubting Thomas finally sees Jesus, and Thomas confesses, my Lord and my what? God. You're not just my master, you're not just my savior, you're not just my Messiah, you are God in the flesh. Jesus is God, and be even clearer than that, Jesus is equal with God. Jesus as God veiled those rights, veiled that power, veiled those honors by becoming man. Though He is God, though He is the substance and essence of God, though He's equal with God, Though Jesus existed eternally with God, created with God, was worshipped as God, claimed to be God, all of that, though that's all true, He veiled Himself in human flesh. Getting back to Philippians chapter 2, He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled Himself to His deity, veiled in humanity. And you think about what Jesus had to go through. By, by veiling Himself in humanity, He had to go through everything that humans go through. He had to learn, He had to grow, He had to mature, though He was perfect. He, he grew in stature. We learned that later in Luke 2. And this all finally landed on Peter's heart it wasn't just something that was doctrinally true, and though it was an external truth, it's something that finally he professed it was a doctrinal truth that he 
professed, a theological, historical, biblical truth. You're the Messiah. You are God. You just add here, Peter says, living God, as opposed to all the false gods that humans have created from the beginning of time, whether they be actual little wooden images or the God of money or hedonism or whatever. You are the true and only living, real God. And he's executing with God his plan to redeem people. As you come to Christmas, do you have to ask yourself this question? Do I make this confession both internally and externally? Do I profess Christ? Ask yourself, do I profess Christ, this, this baby who came to the earth? It seems so impossible. It seems so crazy, perhaps, in a, in a year like this year. It seems so crazy 2,000 years after it happened to, to actually confess this. But the evidence is in, the truth is in, the history is in. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and all who believe this, all who profess this, all who confess it as Peter did, you'll be forgiven of your sins. This is the joy of Christmas, isn't it? This is why we sing. This is why we like Christmas carols. It reminds us of these wonderful, magnificent truths. So let's worship Christ as who He is, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is worthy, isn't He? Let's pray that we'll bow our Messiah, God. Lord God, we do thank you. Father, we worship you and we thank you for having such an amazing plan to redeem humanity, to come in human form, to be among us in the person of Christ. This Christ who, who came on this earth and Produce not just theoretical righteousness or eternal spiritual righteousness in, from heaven. He came to this earth and He lived on this earth in this broken, sinful place, and yet He was absolutely perfect, providing for us perfection wherewith we can be clothed and stand justified before You if we believe. And so, Lord, I pray for belief in the hearts of unbelievers here, I pray that they would make that same confession now with their minds, not just with their hearts, not just with their emotions, not just with their, their, their bodies, but Lord, with their, with their truth, with their minds, that they would worship you as who you really are, God in three persons. Lord, may we profess Christ as who he really is. So, Lord, this season, I do pray that you would save the lost. I pray that for those of us who are believers, you would inspire joy, you would inspire a godwardness, a, a worship that has not been in our hearts to this point, that by studying these truths, by reflecting on Christ coming to this earth, that we would worship Him in a new and special way. Grow us, mature us in this. Help us understand these truths better. Help us to dig into these things more so that we can worship you with the truth and in spirit. And Lord, for those who don't know you, call them to salvation today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.